Evening, everyone. Evening, everyone. Yeah, oh, you're awake. Good. Nice to see you here. Uh, my name's Mark. If I haven't met you, one of the pastors here, uh, your usual pastor, Joel, is away at the moment, romancing his wife down in Melbourne. Uh, so do pray for them. Uh, before I start, just to refresh your memory, we are doing currently part five. This is week five of a 16-week series that we're doing in Luke's Gospel. And uh, to accompany our way through that, we've produced these series handbooks. There are notes in here. There are Bible studies, daily reading guides, uh, home group questions, all that sort of stuff. And even space for you to write your sermon notes on here. Uh, This week, if you have your booklet, we're on page 52. That's where you can write your sermon notes uh, and uh, questions and things like that. Why don't I pray and then we'll have a think about that passage of Scripture together. Oh, great God, we thank you so much for this time uh, to come together and to listen to your word and to think about it and to think about how to respond to it. Thank you that we get to spend all of this time over these first couple of terms just looking at your son, Jesus. Uh, Lord, thank you that we have that privilege, uh, that we stand this side of the cross where we can look back on who you have revealed yourself to be through the Lord Jesus. And thank you so much that as we look at him we can know with certainty what you are like, God. And so, God, as we, as we sit with these two stories here tonight, uh, Lord, please help us to see clearly just what sort of a God you are. Help us to understand how your heart beats and help us to align our hearts with yours. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start tonight's uh, sermon a little bit differently. We don't do this every week, uh, but we're going to play a game. And uh, it's a game which you will have all played before. It's not a complicated game. The game is spot the difference, right? You get the idea. You put up two pictures, slightly different. You've got to see sort of where they're the same, where they're different. That's what we're going to do now. Uh, I'm going to put a a picture up on the screen. We're going to dim the lights. And you guys are going to have 30 seconds to try and find as many differences between these two pictures as possible, okay? And you're going to get quizzed on it at the end. So we can get that picture up. All right, 30 seconds. You can talk to the people around you. Did you see this? What about that one over there? Five more seconds. Got to be quick. Got to be quick. All right. Can we bring the lights back up again? Time is finished. Uh, Let's see. Hands up if you found one difference between those two pictures. All right. That's not bad. Uh, You might want to go and see an optometrist. Hands up if you found two pictures. Two differences, rather. Yep. Three differences. Mm, Okay. Four differences. Oh, look at you guys, five differences. Oh, look at this, six differences. Ah, good, that was a trick question. There are only five differences, so you did really well. Uh, What are the five differences? All right, obvious one, the plane, time on Big Ben, the uh, number on the bus, top of the lamppost that's missing. And here's the really tricky one for all you people who are like, I found four, where's the fifth one? The colors are a bit bad. But this dude down here on the bridge, wearing a different colored shirt in the two pictures. I know, it's pretty, it's pretty sneaky, I'm sorry. I feel a little bit dishonest in, in doing that one with you. Uh, now, why am, I, why am I getting you to play Spot the Difference tonight? Uh, there is a reason, there is a connection for uh, where we're going in the Bible tonight, and that is because we're going to play Spot the Difference in the Bible passage that we're looking at today. Uh, because we are going to see two stories, two miracle accounts 
uh, of Jesus as he ministers in and around Israel. And as a reader of these two accounts, actually what we're supposed to do with them is place spot the difference. As you compare and contrast the difference between these two accounts, we're going to learn some lessons. That is how Luke, the gospel writer, intended us to read these two stories side by side with one another. Now, as I said, this is week five of this series that we're in. We've spent four weeks going through chapter six of Luke's gospel, and this is a turning point now. Because in chapter six, Jesus preaches that great sermon on the plain, not like a plane up in the sky, like a field sermon on a plane. He's finished this big block of teaching, teaching about what the kingdom of God is like, what it looks like to be a part of that kingdom. And now we're going to see Jesus start to live out some of the values of that kingdom. And Jesus has made some incredible claims in Luke chapter 6. Do you remember over the last few weeks, just the amazing things we've heard Jesus say about himself? Jesus has said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that that day on your weekly calendar was designed for him. He is the one to whom we owe our allegiance. Jesus has said that he is the one who can rightly interpret the law of the Old Testament. He's the one who has the definitive voice on that. That's an astounding thing to say. Jesus said just last week, you remember, he said, he is the one whom your allegiance to will determine whether you stand or fall on that final day of judgment. These are big claims Jesus made in chapter 6. And there's a question that you're kind of left with as you read through Luke chapter 6. And the question is, well, is Jesus for real? Like, what, what can, How can Jesus claim such amazing things like that? These are big claims. What gives him the right to claim something like that? What gives him the authority to claim something like that? And so now as we enter Luke 7 and Luke 8, we're actually going to see the answer to that question. Luke 7 and Luke 8, they are written to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what kind of claim does he make on my life? That's where we're going over the next several weeks as we slowly make our way through Luke 7 and 8. And actually, the key, it's good to tell you guys now at the outset, that the key to understanding all of Luke 7 and 8 is actually something that took place just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke's gospel. For those of you with really good memories, we looked at this like a year ago, back in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus enters the temple in Nazareth, and he goes, a synagogue rather, in Nazareth, and he goes and he reads from the Old Testament law. He unfolds the scroll, you remember the scene? And he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, this stuff that I'm reading here, this is what I'm here to do. I'll refresh your memory. It's in Luke chapter 4 from verse 18 to 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this scroll and he says, That's what I'm here to do. You're going to see that fulfilled through me, through my ministry. Jesus is saying that he is going to bring this kind of healing, uh, restoring, transforming, saving power of God into people's lives, kind of as a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And that's what these two miracles that we're going to look at today, that's what they are showing us, that this is taking place. This is being fulfilled as we watch. And one of the, the, the very strange things about these chapters, in fact, these stories that we're looking at tonight, is that Jesus is actually not the focus of these stories. It's a strange thing to say, but Jesus is not the main character in these first 17 verses of Luke 7. Luke, the writer, he, he writes it almost as if we're kind of looking over Jesus' shoulder. 
And we're supposed to see the things that Jesus sees and see the people, see the, the situations unfold. And as we look at those things that Jesus is looking at, that's where we're going to learn our lessons tonight. So let's have a look at these passages. Let's play spot the difference and let's see what we can notice. First place to start is to look at the two main characters in each of the stories. That's a sensible place to start, right? What do we notice when we compare and play spot the difference between the two main characters in each miracle story? Okay, the first miracle story, the healing of the centurion servant. It's all about the centurion, right? Who was a centurion? Well, he was a Roman soldier. He was a powerful Roman soldier. He was in charge of a century of men, a hundred men, stationed here in Capernaum, we're told in Luke 7. As a centurion, he had risen the ranks of the Roman army. He was good at his job. He was a very probably a strong and powerful man. He had influence in that place. Uh, he was respectable. This was a prestigious job. It was a tough job, and he would have been compensated well for it. So he would have been a wealthy man. That's who this centurion was. And most centurions, you see, they were they were Gentiles. They were not Jewish, uh, and. What that often meant was that there was a bit of animosity between the centurions and the people of the territory which they were keeping guard over. The Jewish people didn't often like the centurions and vice versa. A lot of animosity there. But we get told in Luke 7 that this centurion, he's, he's different. He doesn't fit that mold. He breaks the pattern a little bit because we're told that he's loved. This centurion, he is respected by the Jewish elders of the town. We're told in, in verse 5 in Luke 7 that this centurion actually helped build the local synagogue. He coughed up money to help build this for the Jews. And so that's a very unusual thing for a Roman centurion to do. And so if you want to kind of connect the dots, you want to figure out why he did this, it's pretty likely that this centurion was what was called a God-fearer. A God-fearer. That means it doesn't mean that he's Jewish. He didn't convert to Judaism, go through all the rites and rituals you needed to go through to become a Jew. But instead, no, he, he believed in the Jewish God. And in fact, he probably respected and feared the Jewish God a little bit. And so he treated the Jews with kindness like this, like building their synagogue. Interesting guy. That's the main character of the first miracle story. What about the second story? Can we see any differences or similarities there? Well, who's the main character? It's a widow. Pretty obvious difference, right? For starters, this is not a Gentile man. This is a Jewish woman who's the main character on view. And she's probably an older woman as well. How do we know that? Well, it's because she had an adult son, a young man. That was the body that was being led out of the town. So she's an older Jewish widow. And because she was in that kind of category, that meant that she was basically at the, the bottom rung in society. There was not much lower in Jewish society than an old widow. There was no prestige or no honor in her position. There's very little hope for her in that position as well, that she would ever kind of improve her lot in life. And so you can see, can't you, as we start to play spot the difference between these two main characters, they are, they are radically different. They are at completely opposite ends of the social spectrum. But Jesus has time to deal with both of them, doesn't he? He has time to enter into their lives and to bring this, this healing, restoring, transforming, saving power of God into their lives. And so there's a very obvious lesson for us to draw when we play spot the difference here. The lesson that Luke wants us to understand is that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. That's the lesson here. 
I don't know if you remember, uh, back when the Obama presidency came to an end a couple of years ago, uh, the White House released a whole bunch of previously uh, unpublished photos of Obama meeting with people and doing things in the Oval Office and in the White House. And some of these photos were absolutely amazing uh, because there was just such a breadth of people that Obama was meeting with. And so for every photo like this one of Obama meeting with the Pope or this one of Obama meeting with Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles, you would have these very candid moments like this one. Remember this photo? This three-year-old kid in a Spider-Man costume shooting a web at Obama and he's playing along with it. And there's the Oval Office right there. Or this one, playing with a kid in an elephant suit. There he is in his expensive suit, lying on the ground. It's amazing, isn't it? This is my favourite one, just crawling around on the, uh, the, the logo on the floor of the Oval Office. Uh, there's one more where he fist bumps a janitor as he's walking past. Obama was a dude, right? But what's amazing about this is that somebody that important, somebody with that much power and prestige, it is so unusual for them to mix with people at such opposite ends of the social spectrum. You get me? Can I say that, that what we see Obama doing there, that's just a tiny shadow of what Jesus is doing here. Uh, what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is for everyone. He's got time for everyone. This saving work that God is doing through Jesus. There are no boundaries, socially speaking, that Jesus will not cross. Jesus has an interest in everyone. That's the first lesson. And can I say, friends, that that is a profoundly practical thing for us to believe. If you are a Christian and you believe that, that is a profoundly practical thing that really should shape the way that you interact with people on a daily basis basis. And even if you're not a Christian here today, that actually has an impact on you too. If you're here today and you are not sure where you stand with God, if you've got questions, if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm just ch- checking out this Christianity thing and I don't know what I believe about God. I don't know whether God would even really be interested in someone like me in a relationship with me. Can I tell you directly and as clearly as I possibly can, yes, God is interested in a relationship with you. Jesus is for everyone. It doesn't matter what your age, your gender, your race, your background is. Jesus is for you. The apostle uh, Peter, he puts it in Acts chapter 10 in this marvelous sermon. He says that he knows that God shows no partiality. That is the God of the universe. He shows no partiality. You are not, si- not outside of his reach. He is interested in you. And the, the good news that we believe as Christians is that God loves all people so much that he would go to the greatest length to make you his own. He would lay down his own life on the cross, paying for your sin so that you could come back to him, so you could know him and relate to him and call him your father. That is how interested in you God is. Jesus is for everyone. You don't need to guess and um and ah to find out. He is interested in you. Now, if you are a Christian here today, I said that this truth should impact you as well. And the question I want to ask you is, have you let this truth really kind of sink deeply into your heart? Have you let this truth change the way that you interact with people? 
I, I think it, it sounds uh, simple to say that our saviour is for all people, right? We all probably agree with that on paper. Oh yeah, Jesus died for everybody. He's interested in everybody coming and having a relationship with him. It sounds really simple and really obvious, but friends, I think the truth is that oftentimes we actually think that Jesus is probably only interested in people like us. That's the trap of thinking that we probably fall into more frequently than we'd admit. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, that's about the rough shape of what somebody who Jesus wants to have a relationship looks like. You know, somebody who's middle class and decently educated and pretty nice, just like I am, you know. That's who Jesus wants to know and relate to. If you ever think like that, can I say that this story reminds you that our God is the God of the down and out, as well as, if you like, the up and in. (laughs) Down and out, up and in. He is the saviour of every race, every age group, every intellectual ability. And so I think we need to take seriously the, the question of how we, who are a pretty homogenous group, how we are going to reach people who are different from us. That's not a question that Christians think about all too frequently. I don't know too many people who have done the hard thinking about how as a church and as a community we are going to reach the politicians in our land as well as the homeless in our land. I don't know many Christians who have thought deep and hard about how to reach the university lecturers as well as the mentally ill. I don't know many Christians that think about how we're going to take the gospel into high-powered boardrooms and reach the executives of this nation as well as How are we going to reach the refugees? But do you see that Jesus wants to save all people and more? All those people and more. And so I think, friends, we actually do need to think hard about that as a community. That might be a conversation you'd like to have with me over dinner. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Because, you know, God willing, as our church continues to grow, if God so chooses to bless us that way, then, friends, we should expect that the people who come into our doors are going to be different to us. If every seat in this room was going to be filled, according to this, if Jesus is interested in everyone, then there's going to be a lot of people who are not like you who will come here. Are you ready for that? Are you up for that? Will you be excited if somebody who walks in this door is nothing like you whatsoever? Are you getting ready for that day? Are you starting to build relationships with people who are different to you here at 6pm. I've said already, I think 6pm is a relatively homogenous group. We're all pretty much the same, far more so than either of the other English congregations here at WBC. And so can I say, I think this is a particular thing that we need to work at. Crossing ethnic lines, crossing age lines, crossing gender lines even, and relating to people who are very different to us. That's uh, one way that this truth, that Jesus is for everyone, it's one way that it will change the way that you live. As you meet together in your home groups this week and you talk about these kind of ideas and we, we let this passage do its work in our lives, I trust that you will come up with lots of other ways that this sort of passage, uh, this sort of idea should transform you. Again, I'd be keen to know. Jesus is for everyone. That's the first lesson that these two miracle stories are trying to teach us. So let's, let's look back at the passage again. If you got it there, look at it, open it in front, of your pa- in front of your face. What else do we notice as we place spot the difference here? On the surface, these two main characters, they are so completely different. But Luke actually wants us to see that if you scratch the surface, if you go a bit deeper, you go to the level of their heart, these two people are actually really similar, right? 
uh, these two people, they are, they are the same in that they are in, both in deep, deep need. Have a look at the centurion's situation, right? His, his servant is ill, his beloved servant. Luke says uh, that he was a highly valued servant. Literally, the word there is, is precious. This servant was precious to the centurion. And you might think, well, that's a really weird thing to say. Like, why would your employee be so kind of precious and close to your heart? He's just an employee, whatever. But you've got to understand a thing about the centurions. As a Roman centurion, you were not allowed to marry. Uh, celibacy, that was your life if you were a Roman soldier. And more than that, if you signed up in the Roman army, your tour of duty was 25 years. And the only way to end that sentence earlier was to die. 25 years of celibate, celibate life. And so you can imagine for someone like this centurion, as he moved around the Roman Empire, his employees would come with him and they would be just about the closest relationships that he would have in life. So much so that these, these employees, these servants who would go with him, they were almost like family to him. So what's going on here? What is his need? Well, the people, the person in his life, rather, that is perhaps closest to him, he's facing the prospect of losing that person. Can I say, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there are some people here at 6pm church who are facing a very similar prospect of a loved one, potentially with a bad diagnosis, and you're feeling what this centurion would be feeling about the future. Now, as bad as the centurion's situation was, the, the, the widow's situation was actually far worse, right? For starters, she's already a widow. You know what that means? That means that she has already lost her husband. She is somebody who's acquainted with grief. She has probably walked that street in Nain, carrying her husband's body sometime in the past. We don't know the details of how or when that kind of happened. But now this, this widow, it's her son who has died. And not just her son, it's her only son who has died. He has passed over into death. There is no hope of healing here for her. Her situation is fixed. And it's a really bad situation to be in because as a, a widow in the ancient Near East, if you didn't have any close family to take care of you, then what your immediate future was probably going to look like was poverty, vulnerability. You would probably be left to beg on the streets. That's what happened to a lot of older widows in the ancient Near East. And so here is this poor woman in a funeral procession for her only son, but she's also thinking about what the future is going to hold for her. Can I say again, maybe that's a situation in some way, shape or form that you are feeling like today. That you're uncertain about what your future is going to hold and yet you feel deeply insecure and deeply in need. Friends, if that's you, can I say that there's, there's reassurance and there's comfort for you in these passages? You've just got to keep reading. Because for both the centurion and the widow, as similar as they are in their need, Jesus comes along and he, he enters into their situation. He intervenes. He invades their lives and he performs a miracle. He shows them this incredible compassion, right? Uh, with the centurion, he makes the decision to, to just go, up and go. We don't get, really get told why, but he's going to go and heal this centurion's servant. He just decides to go and do it and to, to help this man. For the widow, how does, he, how does he respond? Well, he sees this widow. He's filled with compassion. He goes and reaches out to her he says, don't cry. He touches the dead body on the funeral bier and he commands that dead body to become an alive body, a live person. 
Jesus, you see, he uses this this universe-creating immense power that he wields to bring hope, to bring restoration to a broken-hearted Gentile warrior and a nameless widow. I love that about Jesus. I love that he uses his power to help the needy. I want you to know something else here about these two main characters. They are both deeply in need. The other way that they're similar is that neither of them deserve Jesus' help here, right? Did you pick up on that? Neither of those two people, the centurion and the widow, deserve the help that Jesus brings to them. Both these miracles, you see, they're they're acts of sheer grace on Jesus' part. That's really obvious with the widow, right? She, She doesn't even get to say a word in the story. She's introduced and Jesus immediately feels the compassion to go over and, and help her. She's not done anything to deserve that. But you know, the centurion, he's in the exact same boat as well. There's that really interesting kind of dialogue when the elders go to Jesus, right? And they're trying to plead with Jesus to come and help the centurion's servant. It's fascinating to see how that unfolds because the elders, see what they say about this man? They say, this man deserves to have you do this, Jesus. Why? Because he he loves our nation. He built our synagogue, Jesus. Jesus, this guy has racked up some credit with God. He's done some good things. Look at his record, Jesus. He's done enough to have you come and help him, right? He deserves it. That's how they're thinking. But look how the centurion understands himself. Verse 6. Whilst Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, right? You see what's going on? The centurion knows that he hasn't earned any favors from God. He knows that God owes him nothing, but he asks Jesus regardless, right? That's the astounding part here. He has no claim on Jesus, but he still asks Jesus for help. Why does he do that? Well, he's figured out something. He's figured out the second lesson, actually, that Luke wants to show us in this passage. The second lesson is that Jesus helps the needy, not the deserving. Jesus helps the needy, not the deserving. And this centurion has figured that out. That's why he asks. Now, really, look, this is just another way of saying that Jesus is gracious. He gives good things to people who don't deserve good things, right? And can I say that this should blow us away. It's easy to be familiar with this, but this is so unlike the way that our world operates. There there is no person, no institution in this world who operates this way and who will help you just because you're in sheer need. You try this on with Centrelink when you go to Centrelink next time. You say, Centrelink, I'm needy. Please help me. And they'll say, oh, that's lovely. Well, if you could just fill out these million forms for us, if you could just meet these 400 criteria that we have. No, Centrelink, just like every institution and every person in this world, they will help you, but it's contingent on things, right? It's contingent on whether you deserve to be helped. That is not how Jesus operates. Not at all. The help which Jesus gives to people is not contingent or conditional. Jesus does not ask for your postcode or your tax bracket or your UAI or your stamp on your passport or anything else before he comes and help you. You don't have to do anything to merit Jesus coming to help you. Jesus freely helps you because you're needy, not because you're deserving. And friends, that is, that is really good news for us, isn't it? 
Can I get an amen on that? That is good news for us because we are needy people. We all know that, right? This is, this is no secret. We are needy people. Every single one of us is a person who carries around baggage. We have sin and brokenness in our lives. We have regrets and mistakes that we live with every day. We have heartache and all sorts of needs. We are needy people. And not one of us can honestly say that we deserve God's help in those things. We know that, don't we? We don't deserve God's help. But you see, Jesus is willing to help regardless. Jesus is willing to help the needy, not the deserving. Isn't that incredible? And can I say again, I think this is something that's really easy to forget. It's so easy, I think, to, to live and to start to operate in your Christian life as if Jesus functions the same way as the rest of the world. To think that Jesus is someone who helps people who deserve it. Again, you'd never say that out loud, but we do start to, to function that way, don't we? I wonder, let me ask you, does this kind of situation sound familiar to you at all? Do you ever find yourself in those seasons of life where you just feel completely overwhelmed by the pressure that you're facing? Where there are tasks and challenges in front of you, there are obstacles, there is hurt, there are more things than you can possibly face on your own and you are starting to drown you know that feeling, right? Everyone here has felt it in one way, shape, or form. What do we do in those situations? Well, if you're anything like me, then too often, instead of praying about those things, instead of bringing those things to God and asking for God's help with them, we just don't do anything. We just sit there. Or maybe we try and fix it ourselves. Now, why is it that we operate that way? Why is it that our hearts would not bring our needs to God? Well, it's because we've slipped into that way of thinking that the world does, which is that God will only help us if we deserve to be helped. Right? We think to ourselves, no, I've had too much sin in my life this week. God's not interested in helping me. I, I've just been too far from God in my walk with him lately. I can't come and pray to him. I haven't done a quiet time for a week, whatever it is. God is not interested in helping me. That's what we think. We think that God will only help people who deserve it, and so we keep our distance. But friends, can I say, this story is telling you loud and clear, Jesus is glad to help you if you are needy. Of course you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. That is the whole basis of God's grace. You cannot deserve God's grace. His willingness to help you doesn't depend on you. And so if, if you're in one of those situations tonight, if you've been keeping God at arm's length lately, then can I say today would be a great day for you to come and do some business with God, to, to turn back to him in prayer, to admit your foolishness, and to bring your needs and your baggage to him and ask him to help you in that. Because he is a gracious, loving, compassionate, generous God who wants to help the needy, not the deserving. That's lesson number two. So spot the difference. What have we learned so far? We've learned that Jesus is for everyone and that Jesus helps the needy, not the deserving. There is one more spot the difference that we're supposed to pick up in these passages. One more final thing for us to learn. Uh, and that is to do with the response of the people in the story. The response. And so let's compare, shall we, the two responses that go on in these two miracle stories. Look first at the response after the second miracle, the raising of the widow's son. Look at what the crowd say in verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praised God. 
A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. What's going on here is that the Jewish crowd look at this miracle that took place in front of them and they conclude, well, Jesus must be a really great prophet. And that's a pretty logical thing for them to conclude because they probably know their their Old Testament scriptures, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, who perform a miracle almost identical to this one that Jesus does. In 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5, Elijah and Elisha, they raise the only children, the only sons of widows. And so here is the crowd thinking, well, he must be like Elijah and Elisha. Here is a prophet that has come to us. And so they say, God has come to help his people. And that's just dripping with irony, isn't it? Because they are more right than they know. This man in front of them, he is more than a prophet. He is the son of God in flesh. These people are amazed by what Jesus has done. And this news, it kind of spreads about him. And so do you see the picture that Luke is building up for us here? Do you see what has happened, what their response is? This crowd have become fans of Jesus. They've become fans of Jesus. They like what he's doing. They're impressed by him. They'll probably spread the word and say, oh, did, you, did you hear what Jesus did the other day? Pretty good, wasn't it? They are fans of Jesus. Now, look, to be fair, we don't actually know what the response of the widow or of the resurrected young man was. Hopefully their response was a little bit more well-rounded. Uh, but the response that Luke wants us to see in this passage is that the crowd are now on team Jesus, right? They are fans of Jesus. And there is something wrong with that. There is something actually deficient about that response. And you can see that more clearly when you compare it, when you play spot the difference with the first passage. So let's see what the centurion's response is to Jesus. Look in verse 7 and 8. Centurion says, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right? What is the centurion saying? He's, he's figured out something about Jesus. He's figured out that Jesus has a very special and a very impressive kind of form of power that only God has. That Jesus must have come from God if he's got the ability to heal people. And so the centurion says, look, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my place. That's how powerful you are. Don't bother making the trip. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion's response, you see, what is it? It's faith. The centurion has faith. And, and there are only two times that I'm aware of in all of the Gospels where Jesus is said to be amazed by something or someone. One of them is in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is amazed at the unbelief, the lack of faith in the town of Nazareth. And the other thing that Jesus is amazed by is this. Look what he says in verse 9. He addresses the crowd. He says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That's what Jesus wants. And so what is the lesson here that we learn by comparing the responses to these two miracles? The lesson that we learn is that Jesus wants faith, not fans. Jesus wants faith, not fans. Now, I do, just, as we come to a close here, I want to talk about faith for a minute because it's an important topic and it's a topic which our world just confuses and makes a dog's breakfast of far too often. Uh, what is faith when the Bible kind of uses this word and talks about faith? Well, according to the Bible, you see, 
every person kind of has this, this foundational, fundamental, basic life trust. And faith is placing that foundational, basic life trust in something or someone. That's faith. Faith is saying that this thing, that's my bedrock. That's what I'm going to build my life on, right? And so this centurion, he has faith in Jesus. He trusts Jesus. He sees that Jesus is his firm foundation for his life and that he's got no hope unless Jesus comes through for him. And now we often hear people say in this world, or at least I do, I, I, you know, I wish I had faith. It's great that you've got faith. You're a person of faith. I'm not a person of faith. Wasn't born with it, that kind of thing. As if faith is like this intangible quality that some people are born with in their DNA and some people aren't, like the ability to whistle or something, right? If that's how you think about faith, you are just dead wrong. That is not how faith works. Faith is not the special possession of some people. Faith is the possession of every person. Every single person has faith. Every single person has a a foundational, basic life trust that they have put in something. Now look, for the majority of the world, they don't put it in the same thing that we do as Christians, but they do put their trust in something. For a lot of people, they put it in their own moral goodness, their sense that I'm a good person, I'm going to do what's right, and that's what I'm going to base my life upon. Uh, Some people put this basic life trust onto the shoulders of another person, a spouse or a a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a child even. That's a terrible idea to put your faith on the shoulders of another person because you will crush that person with disappointment. Uh, Actually, a lot of people in our world, they place their faith on the non-existence of God. A lot of atheists place their faith on the non-existence of God. You can't prove that God doesn't exist, but an atheist will build their life on that belief. They will put their basic life trust on the premise that God does not exist and they will stake their life and stake their eternity on that belief. An atheist has as much faith as you and I do, just in a different thing. point that I'm making is everyone has faith, right? Everyone has that basic trust they've put in something. And so just to be clear here, what Jesus is saying when he says, this faith is amazing, I want you to have faith, he doesn't want you to have faith in just anything. That's not the point. He wants you to have very specific faith. A faith that is grounded in him. He wants you to put your basic life trust on him. That's what he wants. He wants faith, not fans. He doesn't want these crowds of admirers who like what he stands for. He wants people who will take a stand on him. These people, he wants people who will, will flee from those houses that are built on sand like we read about at the end of chapter 6 last week and instead build their life on the solid rock foundation that is Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. And so my last question for you tonight as I finish. Do you have faith in Jesus? Or are you just a fan? Do you have faith in Jesus? Or... Are you just a fan? You've got your faith in something today. That question is without doubt. Is your faith in Jesus? Jesus does not want people who are just going to pay him lip service, who are, who are going to like the things that he does and be interested in the things that he does. Is Jesus for you kind of in that same category as the football team that you support or the, the music that you like? 
you like Jesus as much as you like those things. Those things don't impact your life in any kind of meaningful way day to day, but you're pretty happy to say, oh yeah, I like that. I subscribe to that. I'm interested in hearing from that source. Is that who Jesus is to you? Can I say, if you're a fan of Jesus, then the truth is that you've not understood who Jesus really is because the only appropriate response when you truly understand the the grace and the power of Jesus, the only appropriate response is faith. It's to build your life on him. So do you have faith in Jesus tonight? Have you said to Jesus, Jesus, I am all in with you. I'm betting it all on you. I'm not clinging to anything else except you. I'm going to build my life on you, Jesus. And if you don't come through for me, then I've got nothing I'm not deserving of any help that you are going to give me. I am needy and I trust that you are good and that you want to help me. I'm hanging on your every word, Jesus. I'm building my life on you. Have you said that to Jesus? He wants faith, not fans. And Jesus is the only foundation that we can build our lives upon who will not disappoint us, who will not crumble. He will not let us down. Let me pray. Our great God, we we thank you so much for what you show to us in Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus you have shown your interest in the whole world. Thank you that your love has no boundaries and that you desire all people to come back to you. Thank you so much, God, that you bring your healing, restoring, transforming, saving power into the lives of needy people, people who do not deserve your grace. God, we thank you so much that you have done that for so many of us here. Saved us when we did not deserve it. God, would you please help us this evening to have faith in you. Not to be like those crowds who who subscribe to some of Jesus' ideas, who like some of what he stands for. No, help us to be those people who bet it all on Jesus, who cling to nothing besides him. Help us to be people, Father, who build our lives on Jesus and Jesus alone. We ask in his name. Amen.